0: Okay, good morning, everybody. I'll I'll try and make this uh, quick. I'd much sooner uh, do what we did this morning. Okay, wouldn't it wonderful, was it, just to see uh, two young people giving their lives to Christ. How fantastic is that? Well, over the past uh, couple of months, uh, we've been looking uh, at this Bible reference, which is um, found in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Uh, And we've been learning uh, about uh, the many names of God which are described uh, throughout the Bible. And this part, however, is unique in that God, in this here, actually is describing Himself in this discourse with Moses on Mount Sinai. He describes Himself, as it says here, the Lord, the Lord the merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth uh, generation. Now, firstly, it's hard for us to fathom this situation, isn't it? It's hard to Get our heads around this encounter between God and Moses. Uh, this is a very fearful experience. Can you imagine what it must be like to actually meet God almost face to face? It says that God passed by. Let's not forget, you know, that Moses has already encountered Uh, God in the burning bush in the wilderness. He'd already had 40 years of experience living in the wilderness in preparation for this time. And he'd also had 40 years previous to this learning how to manage and govern a nation in Pharaoh's palace. But this is still an awesome experience, isn't it? And as God begins to describe himself, Moses reacts like this in verse 8, following on from here. It says, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. In response, God says, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Whoa, goodness me. Can you imagine that just being said to you by almighty God? Isn't that something which would make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up? Ladies, you know that experience well, don't you? (laughs) Let the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Can you imagine when your heart's pounding and your emotions are moved to the point of bursting, when God says, I am going to do something awesome with you? God said, behold, I am going to make a covenant. So then, what is a covenant? Now, the dictionary uh, would tell you that a covenant is many things. It's a promise, it's a treaty, a pact, a deal, a bond, a guarantee, a pledge, or a contract. Now covenant comes from a Latin word called convenir, which means to come together or to agree. But today we use the word covenant almost interchangeably with the word contract. But the trouble is, that's quite misleading Because when we try and compare our notion of contract with the biblical notion of covenant expressed by the words in the Hebrew and Greek, it doesn't fit. Now, Andrew's in the building, so we're not going to be talking about Hebrew and Greek today, all right? But all I can say is that in the context here, the meaning of covenant in Hebrew is translated to cut which indicates the requirement for the shedding of blood to seal a covenant. And you've probably heard of the term blood covenant. Have you heard of the term blood covenant? Now, Tim spoke a few weeks ago about the covenant that we read about in Genesis 15 between God and Abraham, whereby animals were cut in half and they were put like one half this side, another half this side, and in order to uh, be part of this covenant, the two people involved in this covenant would walk through the center of these dead animals that have been separated in half. That is how important, gruesome as it might sound, that is the kind of thing which said this is a serious commitment between two parties. That type of commitment, is something which seems alien in our society today. But in that situation, the great example was that God made Abraham sleep during that covenant and pass through the divided animals on his own, signifying that God would singularly fulfill the terms of the covenant. God made promises which required nothing of Abraham. How awesome is that? It was unconditional. So let's just think about what we do in a contract situation. I've got a contract here. Okay. Would anybody like to enter into this contract with me? Well, you can read it. It's okay. Uh, Anybody got a pen? Who's brave enough to enter this contract with me? Good. Come on then, Dick. Come and enter into this contract. Who's got a pen? Thank you. Okay. Ah, very good. Thank you. Right, right, that's That's my signature. Thank you, Dick. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jill, for handing over the deeds of your property. I appreciate that very much. He has signed a legal document between me and him. This is the contract, my work contract. This is what I give to my clients to sign before I will do business with them. But the good thing, which Dick probably knows because he signed a few contracts in his life, is that there's conditions in there on both his side and my side. So if I don't fulfill my 50%, he doesn't have to fulfill his 50%. So he doesn't have to pay me anything until I've performed what's in this contract. Now then, when you and I enter into a contract to buy a house, you make a promise to the seller along the lines of this. I give you my word that I will pay you this amount of money for your house. And the seller in return makes a promise which says, I give you my word that if you pay me the sum we've agreed upon, I will give you the ownership of my house. The word you each pledge to the other is your name, which is what Dick and I did. We pledged our name to each other. We signed something which basically said that if you keep your promise if i keep my promise and dick keeps his promise it's a deal basically biblical covenants are very different from that a biblical covenant 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 a biblical covenant is much more than just a promise A covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. The difference, therefore, is that contracts are negotiable, but covenants are not negotiable. In contract, you make a promise to a person. In covenant, you swear an oath before God. Contracts have conditions. Covenants have unconditional obligations. Contracts have limited application. In other words, it's 50-50. 50% 50 me, 50% Dick. Covenants have an unlimited application where I might have to take 100% and Dick might have to take 100%. In contracts, the motivation is self-interest for our protection or our profit. In covenants, The motivation is self-sacrifice out of interest for the other person. Contracts are brief or temporary and can be broken. Covenants are permanent and cannot be broken. Now the Bible speaks of seven different covenants, four of which God made with the nation of Israel. And these were covenants with Abraham, two with Moses and David. Of those four, three are in con- unconditional in nature. In other words, regardless of Israel's obedience or disobedience, God will still fulfill these covenants with Israel, even today. Now, one of the covenants, and it's this covenant which we're talking about today, which was made between God and Moses on Mount Sinai, the Mosaic covenant is conditional. Conditional. That is, this covenant will bring either blessing or cursing depending on Israel's obedience or disobedience. The remaining three covenants are made between God and mankind in general and are not limited to the nation of Israel. And these were given to Adam, were given to Noah, and they were, it was given through Jesus. Now just think for a minute, you may not know this, but my daughter went into labor this morning and she's she's in hospital at the moment and she's just been sent home, I've just done a text, but she's probably going to have the baby today, we don't know. But one of the things that's close to me at the moment is my daughter's going to be suffering pain (laughs) over the next couple of days, but it's all to do with the covenant with Adam. It rained this week and I don't know about you, but I saw a couple of rainbows this week, did you? That's all about covenant. Tell me very quickly, just make sure you're awake. What was the covenant God made with Noah? He would never flood the earth again. How wonderful is that? Because I tell you what, if you were a person in Noah's day, and there was only obviously eight left, but if, if you were one of those and it started to rain, what would you be thinking? Is God going to flood the world again? What's going to happen? Because it it, it had such a a powerful connotation. And yet, how wonderful that God shaped raindrops when they fall from the sky into many little prisms. And he shines his light through the prism. And he creates this color, this bow, which says, I'm never going to flood the earth. So every time it rains and people are afraid, don't worry, guys, I'm never going to flood the earth again, because I've put my covenant, I've put my bow in the sky. So then, I want to focus here not so much on how covenants are made, but on what God is up to when he's making these covenants. He's saying to his people, I want to be your God, and I want you to be My people, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. Effectively, by his covenants, the human race is being transformed from something physical and natural into something spiritual and supernatural. The storyline and the drama of the Bible all plays out against this backdrop of God's love and desire for his people. Can you remember kind of all those details in the Bible that seem so hard to figure out the laws and the commandments and the historical episodes of sin and rebellion and repentance and forgiveness, the punishments and deliverance, the Psalms and the wisdom teachings and the prophetic words? They all make sense when you understand them as part of God's divine plan to make all men and women into his sons and daughters through his promise and his covenants. In Exodus 19 verse 6, God was wanting to make Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was to be God's light to the world around them. He wanted them to know that they worshipped Yahweh, the covenant keeping God. Now imagine for a moment the Israelites had been delivered from Egypt. They'd been In Egypt for 400 years, they were completely immersed in the Egyptian culture. They knew nothing else. And now this stiff-necked people, which uh, Moses refers to them as, needed a system of laws by which they could be governed. So God, on Sinai, delivers the laws on tablets of stone. The Ten Commandments, and behind that sat another 600 commands, 300 positive about 300 positive and about 300 negative. And the history books of the Old Testament from there onwards, going from Joshua through to Esther, Esther, give testimony of whether they've been able to keep up with all the commandments. Have they disobeyed the commandments or have they obeyed them? And as a result of that, there was either blessing or cursing. The Mosaic Covenant was a conditional covenant that either brought God's direct blessing for obedience or God's direct cursing for disobedience upon the nation of Israel. Now, the Bible talks about God's law as being what? Anybody know? God's law is perfect. The Bible says that God's law is perfect. The law was good in that it would reveal to people their sinfulness and consequently their need for a saviour. But we can often view the law, can't we, as being quite a negative thing? Okay, so if you think who thinks the law's a negative thing? Oh, that's good. That's good. Because actually the law's not a negative thing. You imagine our country right now, if it was governed by no laws whatsoever. Could you be sure when you went home after the service that your house would not be ransacked? Or your car would be gone? Or, or something would happen? It would be anarchy on the earth, wouldn't it? Absolute anarchy. So, you know, the law is not a ne- negative thing. The problem with us is that everybody agrees that the law is a good thing until it stops us doing something which we want to do. Then it's not a good thing, is it? Paul covers this well. Believe who we're, remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about the Apostle Paul, somebody who was very powerful, Very, you know, godly. He's a man that we all look to. We look to his teachings. He says this, and you've heard this maybe before, reading this from the Living Bible in Romans 7. He says, the law is good then. The law is good then. But the trouble is, it's not the law, but it's with me. Because I'm sold into slavery with sin as my owner. I don't understand myself at all. For I really want to do what's right, but I can't. I do what I don't want to, what I hate I know perfectly well that what I am doing is wrong, and my bad conscience proves that I agree with these laws I am breaking. But I can't help myself because I'm no longer doing it. It's a sin inside me that is stronger than I am that makes me do these things. I know I'm rotten through and through, so far as my old sinful nature is concerned, no matter which way I turn. no matter which way I turn. I can't make myself do right. I want to, but I can't. When I want to do good, I don't. And when I try not to do wrong, I do it anyway. It goes on a bit, doesn't it? But you can see his frustration with himself. Now, if I'm doing what I don't want to do, it's plain where the trouble is. Sin's, sin still has its evil grasp on me. It seems to be a fact of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love to do God's will so far as my new nature is concerned. But there is something else deep within me in my lower nature that is at war with my mind and wins the fight and makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. In my mind, I want to be God's willing servant, but instead I find myself still enslaved. So you see how it is. My new life tells me to do right, but the old nature that is still inside me loves to sin. Oh, what a terrible predicament i'm in or as another translation said oh wretched man that i am wretched who will free me from my slavery to this deadly lower nature the bible says and we know don't we there's no one righteous no one we're all in the same boat just because we go to church or give money to charity or have live a good life and don't harm anyone we know in our hearts we all fall short don't we we're broken. And therefore, under the terms of this conditional covenant that we're talking about, we are all in breach of the agreement and therefore we're all condemned. The problem is God's laws are good and for our protection and flourishing. And when we have bad attitudes and get tempted away, we can feel ashamed and then we withdraw from relationship with God. Sometimes we get annoyed and resentful of the law and rebellious, but none of that helps us escape the consequences, does it? You know, I had a parking ticket about three weeks ago. Oh, just what a, it's annoying, isn't it? I wasn't pleased. To be honest, I thought it was petty and pointless and unjustified, noting the circumstances, which I won't go into now. But how I felt about it and uh, and the justification for it made absolutely no difference. I still had to pay the fine. And so we may justify our position. It makes no difference. The consequence under the covenant is the same. Condemnation. And this was the problem with Israel. And has been mankind's problem throughout the ages. We can never keep the law as God intended. And that is why just as God took responsibility and walked through the middle of the parting animals in his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15... So God has provided us a blood sacrifice through the death of Jesus on the cross who on his own took responsibility not only for his part of the covenant but also for my part of the covenant. Colossians 2 verse 13 to 14 says this, you were dead in sins and your sinful desires were not yet cut away. Then he gave you a share in the very life of Christ. For he forgave all your sins and blotted out the charges proved against you. The list of his commandments which you had not obeyed. He took this list of sins and he destroyed it by nailing it to Christ's cross. And in this way, God took away Satan's power to accuse you of sin. And God openly displayed to the whole world Christ's triumph at the cross where your sins We're all taken away. Are you not excited about that? Are you? Or has it got a bit stale for you? That's the sound of your redemption, folks. That is the sound of your redemption. That is what Christ did for you on the cross At Calvary, he took the nails for you in his hands and in his feet. And salvation was bought for you and me. Matthew 5, verse 17 says of Jesus, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished in Ephesians verse two, uh, for chapter two, verse eight. It says this: For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one may boast. Verse thirteen to fourteen says: But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commands expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Praise his name. Jesus at the last supper said these words as he took the bread he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He went through on his own and he decided both sides of the covenant, your side and my side to make us completely and utterly free. Is there a part for us to play in this covenant? There's no conditions other than this. And that is to accept Jesus as our saviour, to recognise that we need his forgiveness in order to be delivered from the penalty of our sin. And in the light of of what he has done for us, live our lives to serve and please him. How blessed are we, folks, this morning? How blessed are we? How great is this gospel? Because there is a hope which Christ brings through his blood. He took the penalty that we should have. There's no better way. And I'd encourage you today, if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and your Saviour, He is here this morning to meet you right where you are. His love for you is unconditional. However, he would ask you to come and accept him as your Lord and Savior this morning. There's no better way. And if you want to talk to any one of us here, you've seen the demonstration of it this morning in the the pool, the baptism pool. And how wonderful is that example? That can be for anybody in this room today. Bless his name. He's good, huh? Amen. Thank you very much, Dave. Let's stand. You know, Dave has been reminding us that in many ways it's, it's, all, about, it's all about Jesus, isn't it, in our lives and what Jesus has done for us. We've seen it as we've done the baptisms. I started off with the Colossians 1 passage that Jesus it is in all things. He's He's through all things, he created all things, and it's all about Jesus and what Jesus has done. And we're just so thankful. Let's just praise Jesus together uh, as as we end.